now. Join the You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Welcome to Morph Mom Moments. I am thrilled and honored and just could not be happier to be sitting next to my guest tonight, famed author, scholar, lecturer, and just an amazing woman, Alita Brill, uh, author of Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, The Memoir of a Romantic Feminist. And we're going to get to Alita very soon, and I know all of you out there are waiting to get to Alita and not hear about Morph Mom, but I'm going to interject for a moment. And the radio show tonight is called Morph Mom Moments. And for those of you who are my repeat listeners, I apologize for being repetitive. But for those of you who are just joining us tonight, welcome and thank you. And I hope you continue to join us every Thursday night from 7 to 8. And I want to mention that you can call in at any time as well, 212-631-7553. And Alita is here for the next hour and any questions you want. And I'm here. And please, please join the conversation. And before I get to Alita, I want, again, like I mentioned, I want to give you a little summary of what Morph Mom is and uh, a little history of how we came to be here today and just how in sync Morph Mom is with what Alita has done, with what Alita has written. And it's just almost astounding tonight as we were making the comparisons of what Morph Mom hopefully represents to some of you out there. Uh, I began Morph Mom four years ago. I had been a lawyer. I stopped. I was home with kids. I tried to go back. They didn't want me back, which was not that surprising. And I sort of had to figure out my way. No confidence, no uh, connections, literally no idea with who I sort of was anymore. I was great with doing what I had to do at home. Well, maybe not great, but I was doing it. And not so great about who I was anymore. So thought long and hard, tried to figure this all out. And I thought maybe the best way to do this or to approach this was to go to the women who had done it, who had figured it out, and who were willing to pay it forward to those of us out there who needed the help and needed the helping hand, needed the assistance, and just needed sort of the the confidence to know that others had done it and we could do it as well. So I began Morph Mom, and I bought a video camera, and I just 
traveled the country and started interviewing women who had done it. It was defined by whatever they had done that they in turn could share with someone else, someone looking to do the same thing. Um, we have about 600 videos up on Morph Mom. And if you want to watch them, I encourage you to go to morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. Uh, join, if you connect on the inter- on the website as well, you can connect with others as well. If you register, you can then connect with those who are on the website. Following that, there are Huffington Post articles that cover these amazing women. I now have this radio show, which is just unbelievable. I still can't believe I'm sitting here next to Alita Brill. Uh, and we've also started something which will come out I travel the country and I do cocktail parties to connect women to just sort of learn with learn what your next door neighbor is doing and ultimately to support and be kind so basically that's the overall view of morph mom and enough about me clearly and uh without further ado I want to introduce my guest tonight again Alita Brill uh, again, the author of Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, The Memoir of a Romantic Feminist. And you can pre-order the book now. It will be out, uh, I think, in about two weeks in stores, but you can pre-order it online and in stores as well. And there are book tours going on as well that you'll be able to hear from Alita. But um, Alita, I'm going to turn this to you now, and I'm going to ask you, how did this all begin? How this book began begins with the death of both my parents in 2009. And they were elderly, and uh, my mother died in February on Betty Friedan's birthday. Um, A coincidence, some say, knowing my mother, others say, of course she died on Betty's birthday. Um, Betty also died on her own birthday, so that simplified celebrating her death and her birth. And then my father died three months later, and I was cleaning out their apartment. They had been married for 68-some years. And I was a late child, an unexpected child. My mother was a pack rat, not a hoarder. I think that's very important to distinguish. She was a very organized pack rat. And I found in her personal closet this folder that said very, very important documents. But from my mother, every piece of paper was important. So I didn't think too much of it. But I opened it up, and inside was the letter I wrote to Princess Grace Grace Kelly, um, before she, just before she got married, telling her that I wanted to start a stamp collection, a lie, um, <laughs> and that I hoped she would be happy forever and ever and ever. That was what I was after. And the palace responded. They sent a, a first day cover, a card, and my mother trotted me down to the local newspaper, the Long Beach Independent Press Telegram in Long Beach, California. I told my little story. They wrote me up, and I thought, oh, good, I'll be a writer. This is easy. You write something, you're in the newspaper, that's easy. Well, being a writer is not easy. Um, But there I was at age 60, standing, or almost 60, standing in front of this very, very important document. And on the same shelf as that, I found a paperback copy of The Feminine Mystique, the landmark book that Betty Friedan wrote in 1963, uh, the 25th anniversary, I think, of it, a paperback inscribed to my mother. Um, And I thought, okay, how does this happen that a little girl who wanted only to be a princess bride and an actress, how does she end up as a close personal friend of Friedan's 
and as what men have called me, a frothing feminist. And I realized that in those two things, my mother had so carefully preserved the Princess Grace stuff from when I was a little girl and the Betty Friedan book that she inscribed to my mother after she met my mother through me, that there was a book, that there was a book in it. And that's how the book came to be. Now, prior to, I mean, you'd written many things prior to that. So I want to step back a little bit and let's talk about how you even entered the world of writing. How did it all begin? And you said the aspiring actress and the princess, how did it begin? I was good at writing and bad at arithmetic, if you want to know the (laughs) truth. It's sort of that typical girl thing. I was very good at writing and lousy at arithmetic, and I figured, well, you know, I forget arithmetic. I later came to champion, as a feminist, courses that equalized um, men, girls, and boys with arithmetic. But I was very, very bad at numbers and very, very good with words and reading. And I don't know how one becomes a writer. I always tell people that, I think you don't become a writer. I think you are one. Um, it's not all that pleasant. I mean, you're uh, there you are, you know, stuck with yourself and your words. Um, it's a life, but, you know, it's, an, it's certainly not easy. Um, I, and then I moved into writing scholarly things about civil rights, civil liberties, and then moved over. I was extremely alarmed um, at what was happening to gay men during what were called the plague years, when they were the plague years, and I felt that more than any other group at that moment in our you know, society, in civic society in America, that gay men were being persecuted because of AIDS, and I couldn't stand it. So I went to an editor that was interested in my work. I'd already published on civil liberties, and I wanted to write a book about privacy and gay men called The Open Bedroom. And she said, no, I want you to broaden it. And so I wrote this book called Nobody's Business, and it was a triptych, if you will. It started with birth and the invasion of privacy, uh, women invading women's privacy during pregnancy and reproductive technology and how that could be used against women. And then the section on gay men, and it was during the Hardwick decision, which was a Supreme Court decision that was just truly vile, where you know, the Supreme Court, you, know, you could barge into the homes of people. So the center section was the open bedroom, and then the last section was privacy when you're dying, which I called last rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, a little coy. But that then launched my career as a, as a commercial or non-scholarly, non-fiction writer, and that's a long time ago. Was it a hard transition for you when you sort of decided to, to make the switch? From scholarship yeah. to writing for the general public, no. I truly felt like somebody had given me the keys to the jailhouse. <laughs> Not that scholarship isn't really important, but it didn't suit my personality or my style and or my writing. And during this time, as you said, you were very involved with the feminist movement and, with, and, and good friends with Betty Friedan as well. Can you... Can you tell us about that? I started to be involved with the feminist movement during the consciousness raising when I was in college when women and girls and young women, uh, students and older women, got together in these what we called cells. And it's interesting because listening to you talking about Morph Mom and taking the video and going out, I mean, it is truly a 21st century version of what we were doing. And it's so wonderful to hear because the technology is different, but you are sharing 
and talking and understanding one another the way we were trying to with the consciousness raising cells in the in the 60s and early 70s um and then I was I went to graduate school for a while. I didn't really suit me, and uh, came to with my husband at the time to Berkeley. He had a job. I tried to find a job. I found a job, and I got very involved in Berkeley feminism. Um, but then I got a really good job in Berkeley in a research institute, and then I was part of the whole male research world and in those days in the 1970s in Berkeley California it was male dominated and indeed survey research and quantitative research um, that looked at political opinions was male it wasn't it was nationally quite male um, although there were one or two leading women who did polling and they were kind of wonderful um, and then I moved to New York when I was 30. Uh, years old, and it was then when I was 30 that I met Friedan for the first time, and it was an instant connection, and this book that had changed my mother's life and had liberated my mother from depression and grief and boredom became my second mother. She truly was my second mother. How did you meet her? How did it happen? We met her. Uh, I met her. Uh, we met at a political organizing event, and she was the friend of many friends of mine, and we were just put together. And she uh, was very impressed and liked very much my work on civil liberties and my anti-censorship position on pornography. And it was an instant connection. Did you know at the time what an impact she had made on your mother? Well, yes, because our my entire this is a wonderful question. My entire childhood was turned upside down. Uh, the feminine mystique, which came out in 1963, for those of you who are too young to know when that was, um, it is a long time ago. Uh, it really began the feminist movement in this country. There were others writing and thinking, but her book made the biggest splash um, at the time and really began the movement of and I will say this because one needs to be absolutely truthful, of white middle-class women understanding that there was more to their lives than what you just described about your own life. Um, and so my mother called it the book, uh, never referred to it by its name. It was tattered and torn, and she didn't buy many books. We were not a wealthy family. Money was not in large supply. She checked everything out from the library, but she bought the Fen and Mystique, her original hardback. It was tattered. It was torn. It was marked. This is a woman who kept books forever that she did own with her dust jackets. This was her Bible, and she called it the book. She made my father read it, and he would pick it up, and he would say, well, if it's not in the book, I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but he was a feminist himself, I think, always a natural feminist. And she had a talk with him, and she said, you have worked too hard for too long and your health is failing and it was and she said I have saved this much money from the household budget and I'm going to get a job and she did get a job and wasn't you know wasn't a professional job but she loved it she went to work for a woman who managed an enormous block of apartments and she worked um, with this woman showing apartments and negotiating the contracts for rental 
And she insisted that my father quit working for a while. And, of course, that was something that he couldn't imagine, a man of his generation. But she just insisted, and so he did. And it enabled him to get very healthy and to live to be in his late 90s. And it also enabled me, as an only child of much older parents, to have time with him alone. And they already had an unusual marriage in that, what I call the gender-bender marriage. Um, he shopped for all my clothes with me. She had no patience for that. He did all the cooking. He did all the food shopping. And so I learned to cook because of my father. Um, so the the book itself was a monumental presence. In fact, I say in the book that it was as if Betty Friedan had written a personal letter to my mother. And her neighbor friends, one of them in particular, asked my mother, well, when did you meet Betty Friedan? Because she had memorized so many of the passages, including one of the great ones, which I really enjoy, which is, you and I talked about a little bit earlier before we went on air, um, where she talks about a woman many women lying in bed next to their husbands and they should be happy and they should be this and they should be that but in their hearts and their minds they're saying to them to themselves is this all which of course was interesting because my mother took that and and did i think it was the peggy lee song if that's all there is i'll go on dancing so yes and friedan was so when i met her i told her this story about my mother and she said well i want to meet your mother i said well she's in california but of course my mother and father started to come visit me so that's when my mother and father met her were you there when your mother first met her? Oh, the sure, first, because was she, it just... she was my friend. Uh, well, my mother was intimidated by her, and Betty was intimidating and difficult, but she was also extremely generous, and she understood that what this book had done for my mother also made me a feminist. Um, and about that, I will say, I went many, many places with Betty socially, and she could be gruff, and she could lose her temper and many things. And in fairness to her, you know, I think it was extremely difficult to be a person that when you're just trying to have a burger and a movie with a friend, people come over and say, you know you changed my life. You know you changed my mother's life. And sometimes she wasn't gracious. Sometimes she was rude. Um, but with my mother, she was lovely, always. It's, there's a... a, a portion of Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, where you mention that when you were going through your mother's things, that you found her writings. And I thought mm -hmm. I found this fascinating and that it was something that Betty Friedan, and she had expired her so much to do what she had done and go out and work and that she was just an amazing writer, but kept, kept these things to herself. Except verse. She wrote verse for people's birthdays and babies being born and she wrote rather moving sentimental verse when someone died but she didn't she didn't believe in herself enough to go out and go to college and be what she might have been but she was extremely well read totally self-taught um and she kept these journals to herself recording her thoughts and perhaps one of the saddest things which I didn't mention in the book I'm a great lover of the Russian poet Anna Andreeva, Andreevna Akhmatova. She just speaks to me. My mother loved poetry. She knew poetry. 
I came to Akhmadova late in my life, and by then my mother was very old. And I thought, you know what? It's too late to talk to my mother about Akhmadova. It's too much. I, I'm not going to do that. And again, in that famous cupboard where I found the Princess Grace and the Betty book, here was a tattered copy of one of the first volumes published in the United States of Akhmadova's poems. She had never said a word to me, and she underlined the same poems that mattered to me and the notations. So why didn't she tell me? Um, Akhmadova was a deeply spiritual woman, and the verses she particularly underlined were in one of the Akhmadova um, collections called Rosary. And I am not such a spiritual person. And I think my mother just felt, well, maybe it was too spiritual for me. But I thought, wow, what a lost opportunity. Or what a special find. Well, what a special sign, exactly. Like there's a reason you found, maybe there's a reason you found it when you did. Exactly. That is fascinating. But my mother, who did not go to college at all, um, did a lot of night school after I was grown more grown up my mother was a natural she was the natural scholar she would have been a great scholar um but the reason that i'm a writer is really because of my mother do you and it seems like she was just such an amazing inspiration and would have been to any woman today like that she gave you the confidence and the wherewithal to go out and do what you had to do and to do what you wanted to do and she was also a very sad person and i think it's that's one of the messages to the I have, in, I hope, um, to other women out there. My mother lost her firstborn son, my brother, um, before I was born. And he died six or seven years before I was born. And he was 13 years older than I was. She was depressed and in a cocoon of grief. But he died in 1943. And People weren't interested in individual grief then, and there weren't grief therapy, and there wasn't that much known about depression in that way. And Hitler was killing people by the, as we know, carloads, God help me. So there wasn't a lot of room for one woman's singular grief. And that singular grief could have kept her from taking care of me and a lot of things. It it didn't. It did hamper her ability to experience joy. And one of the reasons that I am forever grateful to Friedan is that book helped liberate her. Did you ever tell her that? We talked about the book and Betty a lot. And towards the end of my mother's life, I said, you know, she said to me, if I could have done it all over, I would have been a philosopher, which is just kind of wonderful that she actually thought that her mind was capable of that, although she hadn't gone to college. And I think Betty was in many ways, my mother had this notion that if she had come from a a slightly, you know, my mother came from a very poor family. Betty didn't come from a rich family, but she came from an upper middle class family. Her father was the jeweler in Peoria. And I think my mother felt very strongly that if she had given the opportunities that Betty had been given, that maybe she could have been Betty. But the thing she always felt very sad about, which she did have and Betty never had, was a lasting love. And my father was her lasting love. And so there, my mother always saw the sadness in Betty, and perhaps in ways that I didn't always. So clearly a scholar without, you know, maybe education doesn't make the scholar necessarily. Well, I think in retrospect, I wish I had encouraged her to 
do more with herself. But it's just a different generation. My mother was born in 1908, um, and her it, mother was a suffragist. And so my mother walked in suffrage parades with her mother. She was the one daughter of um, eight brothers and my mother, um, a huge family in Detroit. And she was the only girl? Of- she was the only girl. And so they walked in suffrage parades with their little banner. And one notorious parade, they came home, the Votes for Women banners. And her father and her older brother were so angry. And they ripped the banner away and made fun of my mother and her mother, my grandmother. So my mother understood from the beginning that the pull for women's rights was a big pull. I grew up in a feminist household, my father and my mother. And also my last book, which is called Dancing at the River's Edge, which I wrote with my longtime physician, Michael Lockshin. And it's a dual memoir. It sort of reads like letters back and forth. In that book, I talk about my mother's involvement um, with my illness and how she stood up for me. And when doctors, in the 1950s, if a girl exhibited funny symptoms, the first thing, she's a crazy girl. You know, you're crazy girls, crazy ladies. And she was fierce. She was four foot 11 and fierce. And she stood up to them. And she had a ferocious anger. And she would say, no, it's not in her head, it's in her bones. Um, But I also write in this book, which in some ways is another, it's not a sequel, but it's certainly the continuation of my life. Um, Because the illness, the chronic illness, which is a a kind of lupus, it's a, a, a connective tissue disease known as Wegener's granulomatosis. Um, but it's it can be a pretty awful disease. When I was a little girl, they thought it was juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and and I had these terrible flares, and then they thought it was lupus and this and that. And during this time, virtually all the, all the men, all the doctors I knew or saw were men, and I thought, this is wrong. This is really wrong. And so I think that partially I came to my own understanding of feminism as a sick girl so that the illness informed that. And so you, you became ill when you were 12 years old? or when you were... I had rheumatic fever at six, and obviously things went off the rails then. But yes, the real illness started when I was 12. And your mother was your biggest advocate as you went through Absolutely. the medical process. Absolutely. She was morph mom. <laughs> she really was morph mom. Um, she was fearless. And yeah. And uh, going back to the, the one book prior to this with your doctor, and he was a male doctor. And how was it with him at that point when you were interacting? Did he, was he understanding or what? How? No, no, not at all. Not at all. But I'm not so sure. Actually, it's so different now because I think a lot of girls that are, and young women that are getting diagnosed with different things, I think the chronic fatigue syndrome is a very good receptacle for doctors to say, oh, she's crazy. I think a mother-daughter relationship is not much different now, that mothers still need to advocate. I, I know. It's a difficult thing. And also, even though many doctors are women now, we still have this status. Doctors have high status. Patients and women don't. Now, I have a question. Having grown up with your mother, who's taught you so much, what in turn do you think you can share 
with the young women out there listening today who sort of maybe you can filter your mother's wisdom and your own wisdom as well. But tell us about women today and the younger women today who really need this guidance and really need this direction. Well, part of the book is really about, I mean, the, the subtitle, The Memoir of a Romantic Feminist, has to do with the fact that I was in love with romance. And there was nothing that my mother seemed to be able to do to get me off of it. It started with Princess Grace. And, you know, I, I certainly accomplished a lot, but I just kept marrying the wrong men. And I seemed to need to have those weddings and all the rest of it. And I didn't get to be a mother because of my health, not because I didn't want to be. I guess my my warning signal to young women, and I do when I say young women, I mean women that have not yet married, is there is no fairy tale. There's no fairy tale out there, and the notion of a romantic love of your life that looks like an American musical is not going to work out for anyone. And so I think that a thing I do see, I mean, I'm diverting you a bit, but a thing I do see with young women, and especially with my own goddaughter who's just finishing law school, is that her generation in the 20s, uh, middle to late 20s, they see relationships more as teamwork and less the fairy tale. So I think the fairy tale is no good. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with letting that go. Um, but the notion of being chosen, the famous Mary Gordon, you got to be chosen, you got to be chosen. I still think that women, young women suffer from that. Look at that hideous, you should pardon me, television <laughs> program, The Bachelor. What is that? All these women clawing at each other for one guy? What are we communicating to young women? You're worthless without a wedding ring. You're worthless without a man. And, you know, so some of my friends tease me and they say, you call yourself a romantic feminist, you're an anti-romantic feminist. <laughs> but I'm not, you see, because I think equality is a very romantic notion. And that's so it as equality in a relationship right. is a very romantic notion. And the title of the book is again, Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, the memoir of a romantic feminist. So what is your definition then, I guess, of a romantic feminist and how does that come across in the book? Well, I certainly I certainly tell my mistakes and I tell how I get got myself and get myself, well, not anymore. Um hopefully too old for that. Um tripped up with this very movie star, you know, movie, not movie star, well, yes, movie star and movie version of what it's like to be with a man uh, forever and ever, the one man. But I still believe that to be romantic is a good thing. And there are, you know, feminists are romantics, and the notion of an equal marriage is a quite romantic thing. But what it is is mindless. And that's really what it's, what it's about. And the last chapter of the book, which is called Toward Romantic Feminism, is in many ways a cautionary tale about how this happens, um, how we are caught up with the extravaganza of getting married, of these weddings that cost tens of thousands of dollars and one dress can cost fifteen or 20000 and these young people 
borrow money. They've already got student loans, and then they borrow money to have these destination weddings. And I think that it's unfair to men because you're casting the man as Prince Charming. You're casting him as Prince Renier, and you're casting yourself as Princess Grace. And it's just not the way it is. Um, and I think I, I do say at one point in the book, you know, we can't think of our lives as Noah's Ark, where everybody has to come on two by two. Um, I do think that the acceptance, and hopefully this is not going to change, the acceptance of same-sex couples and now, thankfully, same-sex marriage, I hope changes the dialogue for heterosexual couples. Because I think however naively, I think the notion of being called a husband and a husband and a wife and a wife puts you on equal, more equal turf. The husband-wife business within the same thing, not good. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's sort of my, but you know, young women don't want to be scolded. I don't want to be scolded. I didn't want to be scolded at that age. Um, And I think that's the other opportunity that my generation, which I gather were called the second wave, um, Actually, I think we're like, I don't know. The suffragists were the first wave. Then there was Betty Friedan. So I don't know what my generation is. Um, we th- we did a lot of good things. And we did a lot of things that changed your lives. Choice. We failed with the ERA. But there were a lot of things we didn't do right. Dancing at the river's edge ends where this book really begins. Dancing at the River's Edge ends in my hospital room with a young woman doctor who had had to perform a really obnoxious procedure on me. And it was a Friday night, and she came in to check on me, and I knew she had two small children. I said, what are you doing here? She said, forget it. I've already missed reading to my kids, my husband's home. And she said, I may as well talk to you. I may as well sit with you. And she was young enough to be my daughter, and she was rising in the ranks of the hospital, likely to be named chief of a particular subspecialty. And she sat down and she shook her finger at me and she said, I have a bone to pick with you and my mother and your and the whole generation of feminists of your age. And the bone she had to pick with us is that you made it all look easy. It's not easy. One of us is going to have to give up the career at home. It's going to either be me or my husband in my home. He's willing to do it because I am the star, and he isn't really a star, although he's a fine doctor. And how could you have let us think it was going to be easy? And what I said is we just didn't realize it was going to be this hard. <laughs> and she, she was so smart. She said to me, no, you didn't finish the job. You didn't put in the structures. There's no child care in this hospital for doctors or nurses or anybody that works here. And I think that's the thing that we need to be, my generation needs to be very humble because your generation and the generation behind you, I think you're looking for those bridges because how do you combine this? How do you do it? It's literally exactly why, and I couldn't believe when we were sitting here today and reading passages from Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, it's Morph Mom. It's exactly why we're sitting here. How do you balance this? And I think I think it starts with, or at least it, an enormously big part of it, is finding others, this support system, this connection, this finding others in a similar boat who understand it. And we may not find the answers, but we're in it together. So I'm curious, you said, so that book ended sort of with that discussion of that doctor. 
What then prompted this book, your most recent book? And for those who are just joining in, I'm sitting here with the most amazing Alita Brill. Amazing, as I said before, author, scholar, lecturer, friend, just amazing person, uh, whose most recent um, memoir, Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, the memoir of a romantic feminist, you can pre-order now, will be out soon. Uh, we're just discussing her amazing history, her life, how this all came to be, and again, her most recent book, her me- most recent memoir. So how did leaving the conversation with the doctor back then sort of lead to Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, and what was it that you wanted, what, what lesson did you want to come from Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty? I think, as I said it when we opened, I don't think this book would have happened if my parents hadn't died and I hadn't found these uh, things my mother had kept. But I think that Dancing at the River's Edge is was half the story because it tells the story of having a life with chronic illness and feminism was the footnote. This book, Feminism is the Text and Being Ill is, is the footnote. Um, I guess the messages are many. I certainly want people to see that you can have extremely untraditional uh, parents or non-traditional parents. I'm sure I've just made a grammatic mistake. <laughs> uh, oh, well. Um, and um, and still... And not, my parents were non-conforming in a totally conformist town. And at the time when I was a child, I felt like an outsider. I think being, you know, I guess the message is to girls, if girls read this book, is it's okay to be an outsider. It's okay to not fit in with the crowd. I was not what they called in my high school a socialite. Um, I, you know, I didn't have the clothes. I didn't have anything. And I was... I was lonely, but I had my books, and I had, I think part of the message is you live inside yourself and also with friends, and you will find friends to support you along the way. And I think that certainly I don't want gratitude from your generation and the young ones, but I feel that there are things that happened that are important to memorialize. Um, it's important to remember that choice didn't exist. Um, Friedan said an amazing thing about abortion, which I always, when people say, so, so-and-so is pro-abortion or anti-abortion, I always say, no, no, it's pro-choice or anti-choice. And I get that from Betty, who said once, who on earth is pro-abortion? It's like being pro-mastectomy. And by that, she was trying to explain that women sometimes need or must have an abortion, but you don't, you're not pro-abortion. So I, I was startled at the last choice, big choice march in Washington, D.C. I was with a bunch of friends. And in front of us were women my age with these huge... Um, hangers that they had made out of paper mache with red tissue paper, you know, and and a younger woman said to me, what are those hangers about? And I said, well, you know, backyard abortions, highly intelligent young woman. And she said, what do you mean back alley abortions, I think that was the term. And she said, what are you talking about? She didn't know that much of the history. I think that it's important for women of my generation to tell our stories and the stories of women. I think it's very important for women to tell their stories because so many stories 
because we're women, still there is this thing called patriarchy, I'm sorry to say, um, don't get their stories out. And so that if all of us come together and tell our stories in different ways, not everyone's a writer, not everybody wants to be a writer, not everyone wants to tell their secrets in print or their history in print, but women talking to each other, mothers, daughters, grandmothers talking to each other, the stories, it's the oral tradition and the written tradition, the stories then move down. Um, when my goddaughter graduated from Yale seven years ago, at Yale there's an amazing sculpture called The Woman's Table um, by Maya Lin, who did the Vietnam uh, Memorial in Washington. And it's a simple granite slab of granite, and it starts with the year Yale was founded and to the, then the present time. And in the middle there's this little bubble, you know, water comes up and floods this beautiful granite table and the f first year Yale zero and it keeps building until you come down to the present time and there's so many women that graduated from Yale and um, you know one of the many uh, all-male schools that had to let women in and I sat at the break in between events with her mother my lifelong friend and we watched these generations of women at the graduation grandmothers great-grandmothers mothers coming with girls and showing, well, that's the year grandpa graduated zero, and this is the year your mother graduated. And watching these little girls, obviously it's an elitist school, and not everyone gets to go to Yale, but I was deeply moved by these little girls' confusion. What do you mean? You mean girls weren't always here? And I think that's that's one of the great things. I, I think I, we shouldn't want gratitude from the younger generation, and I don't. But I don't think ignorance is a good idea either, because I come from a civil liberties, civil rights tradition where I think our rights can be taken away. And I think whatever political party you're a member of at the moment, certainly you see that we are in a moment where the Republican Party is very interested in social control rather than social freedom. So I think freedoms are always up for grabs, and women. Uh, women are always on that list, along with gay people and also along with people of color. We are always vulnerable, and so I think we should not take anything for granted. And it's, it's funny, we were saying like building up, and you have to learn history to understand where you are and how you got there. And that vulnerability reduces, or there's a reduction in the vulnerability, I think, if you know the history of where you are, and you can stand stronger if you know how people got there. And it's so important and i i admit i was reading the book and and i i realized i didn't actually quite understand i guess Frieden's message as well. We were, we were talking about it tonight earlier that it was very similar to the morph mom message. It was very very almost like i had thought like read it somewhere and then came up with this. It's exactly what i was saying and i didn't un i I admit, I did not understand just how similar it was. And I'm so grateful to this book just for that. Sitting there tonight, looking at that and looking at you, I don't think I felt that empowered or that, that I'm doing Thank the right you, thing Kathleen. in so long. Thank you, Kathleen. One of my causes, and I'm hoping this book will make this cause an action, is I have now for a decade been screaming in my own way for a cross-generational feminist dialogue. Um, many 
women who are very involved, who are young, they don't know who Friedan was. They don't know even what um, the title of the book was or what it did. They don't know who Bella Abzik. Pretty much everyone knows who Gloria Steinem is, although she's not young anymore, because she's out there and she stayed so current and has been so determined to learn what young women are doing. And I think many young women trust her. But there's not enough talking between us. Um, We tend to wag our fingers and say, how could you? How did you? I mean, we saw that a little bit with with the younger women who are going for Sanders and when... Gloria and Madeline Albright both said, you know, what are you doing? Well, I mean, I may feel that in my heart too, but they get to choose. But we need to talk to each other more. We need to find forums to talk. It would be terrific when you go national on your tours to bring in old women, older women, and and really have that conversation. Because when we get – I was at a, an event a few weeks ago, which was – I was the oldest woman in the room, which reminded me once Bella Abzik. I used to say to Bella Abzik, oh, my God, I'm the youngest woman at this table again. <laughs> and she said, and someday you'll be the oldest and you won't like it. And she was right. I was the oldest woman in the room. And the young women made their presentations of the work they were doing. They're doing wonderful work. But one of them stood up and said, we are sick of hearing what second wave feminists have to say. We were all raised by second wavers. And I went, ooh, that stings. That hurts. And I would have liked instead to unpack that. What does that mean? You know, is it, how does that happen that you have some resentment and hostility to being raised by second wave mothers? I also think about young men, and I think, you know, they need, Betty Friedan, they need to be part of this conversation. Betty Friedan dedicates the feminine mystique to the new women and to the new men. And certainly my father was a new man of that time. And I think that's the other thing that we need to do is to bring bring the young men in. And I know you mentioned that in your book as well. Um, now, I know you love all of it, but is there something you'd like to share tonight about your book? Is there something that maybe you think could benefit some of our younger listeners out there tonight? And again, those of you joining in, I'm speaking with the amazing Alita Brill and her newest memoir, Dear Princess Grace, Dear Betty, The Memoir of a Romantic Feminist. Uh, and we're just discussing how this all came to be and the importance of our young, which is in general, right? Everybody needs to know what's going on, the history of anything, and that the younger women sort of learn what, what happened and how we came here and how we've come so far and yet what we still have to do. And so I was just asking Alita if maybe she could share something from her book. And uh, again, I want to welcome everyone to Morph Mom Moments tonight. And um, I'm going to now hand this over to Alita as we hear from her new memoir. I'm going to read just a little bit from the chapter called The Book, which I've mentioned, and it opens with a quote of my mother's. Your Aunt Madeline will tell you, if you have a clean kitchen, you will be a happy woman. It's not true. The housekeeping problem on Arbor Road, this is where our house was, had overtaken us. Each day, Mother grew more resistant to the idea that housework was worth anybody's time. At moments of extreme domestic disarray, my Aunt Madeline would arrive and frenetically have at the place with her cleaning supplies. When Madeline put up the ironing board and whipped out her professional steam iron, my mother retreated to her bedroom and her books of poetry. For several days after my aunt's visits, our home 
glistened. Shiny surfaces emerged, freshly cleared of clutter. I enjoyed the sense of found space and tidiness while it lasted. Mother hated housework so intensely. She wasn't humiliated when her sister-in-law came to the rescue. Late in the game, I learned that my father would ask my Aunt Madeline for help. How did you find that out? (laughs) He told me. (laughs) (laughs) Would he really call her and say to come over? Absolutely. That is amazing. (laughs) That is awesome. It was amazing on both sides because my aunt was never critical of my mother. And my mother was grateful but not subservient. Did your mother ever find out your father had called her to come in? Now, that is a secret I do not know. (laughs) (laughs) Probably just as well. (laughs) I think so. That is of course, amazing. Betty Friedan also hated housework, which I think is an important <laughs> thing to know. She, you know, she just, when she was writing the feminine on her dining room table or her kitchen table, she just let the dishes pile up in the sinks. No problem with that. So really, they also shared the hate of housework. <laughs> is there, an, and again, there are so many passages from this book, and I encourage you all to go out and get this because it, it's just amazing. Are there other passages that when you were writing uh, sort of brought something back. So, sort of, You almost felt like your mother was there when you were writing them. I had a dialogue with my mother in my head because I made a very complex dis- marriage, uh, a decision that I should have rethought my last marriage. Um, and it was not an easy marriage, and it turned out not to be a happy marriage. And I knew that, and he died, and my husband died. Um, I stayed married. I helped care for him. He died. He was much older than I. And I knew that my mother would say, oh, my, please, you do, we don't write about things like that. We don't write about something that personal. But here I was talking about, and I had already written the last chapter, Telling girls not to, you know, not to fall into vats of uh, sugared spun taffy for their wedding cakes, and I'm and I'm not writing about a marriage I made when I was old enough to know better. I mean, really old enough to know better. And I, I had a terrible struggle. I even dreamed that my mother would say, "What are you doing? How can you write about this?" But I also knew that to be completely honest to my readers and to myself, I had to write this extremely difficult chapter called Not a Fairy Tale, which is the penultimate chapter of the book, the book right before the last chapter. So my mother was very present, although she was very dead, because I knew she wouldn't approve. But then when it was finished, I felt that it was it was not a mean chapter. That's the only thing I say out there to any young women that want to write nonfiction. Um, tell the truth, but don't be mean. And don't settle scores. Uh, please don't settle scores. Uh, nobody wants that. And you can find ways to tell the truth because all memoir is your truth anyway. Um, I'm sure that if my husband were alive and, and, and within his mind, he ultimately had a kind of dementia, I think that he would tell a different story. Um, and that's okay. But it's it, don't be cruel. <laughs> I think that's the important guide and about memoir. And that must be so, hard, so difficult because to, to step back and tell it honestly and truthfully but not vindictively. That exactly. has to be, I think, one of the most difficult things because the feelings are there, the emotions are there. And how do you 
step back from that. Well, I had a wonderful editor who did the last line edit of this book. And at certain points, he would, with a little red pen, write in rancor alert, rancor alert. So I would go back and look at that and pull it back. Um, Florence Howe, who started the feminist press 45 years ago, and has written quite a bit of memoir. She has this great quote. She says, I write a fiction called memoir. It's a powerful statement. She's not saying she's lying, but she writes a fiction called memoir. And I think that's, we all have our own interpretations. I think of it as the bas-relief sculpture. You see a bas-relief sculpture and things are coming out and those are prominent and then other things are in the background. You can, you know, the background is flat, prominent. We all have different bas-relief. So I remember something a certain way, and that's coming out of the sculpture. Someone else doesn't remember that. They remember the event, but we all have different bas-reliefs in our heads. I have an odd question, I guess, but as you're writing the memoir and reliving certain things or certain circumstances, do you sort of see them in a different way once you start writing them? Well, you know, I keep journals, um, and I'm not advising it. But my mother was a journal keeper. Oh, was she a journal keeper? So I learned that, you know, when I was bored or this or that or sick or something, and I would say, can't I do this? Can't I do that? She'd give me a little journal and say, write. Um, so I come from a journal-keeping matriarchy. So I keep I kept journals. I keep journals. So I could go back and check dates and facts and things I remember. Um, and it was interesting how spot on I remembered the things I wrote about because that's why I remembered them. Um, I, I don't know the answer really to what you said. I think I don't know how to write without having kept a journal. I know some people are able. And it's not that I wrote down every single thing, but it certainly helps to have year-by-year journals. I think it's such a brave approach to writing. And I think we all need to realize how invaluable this is to, to all of us, to every generation from here on in, because this is how we learn. And we learn from your truths and your honesties and your bravery of sharing those. So I, I mean, I'm completely grateful and as should everybody else be and my daughter and her daughter and daughters to come that you were willing to step up with all of your writing. And then most recently with dear princess grace, dear Betty, to tell these truths and to share them. And I don't think it's always that easy to share certain things. But Kathleen, I think what you're doing is very brave because you're going out and you're not hiding at your desk with lots of, you know, notes and other people's writing and the computer screen. And you're really out there and you're really asking women to tell you the truth and for you to tell them the truth. And this is the 21st century, not the 19th or the 20th or the 17th or whatever century I think I want to be in. What you're doing is also going to last and it's very important for us to to get behind that. And Thank you. I think this is, I didn't know about Morph Mom um, until this interview was booked. And I'm just so pleased to have been here and to see what you're doing and that it resonates to me and with me and for me and that it, it's a terrific, just terrific thing. I can't tell you how much it just meant to me that you just said that. Uh, thank you. I don't even know what else to say. Um, it really means so much to me that you say that and that when I read your book and it stands there and we talked about Gloria Steinem before and just, oh, we have a caller and we only have two minutes. Oh, no. Hello. Welcome to Morph Mom Moments. Hi. Hi. I just have a quick question. Okay. What's your question? Um, I just wanted to know if Adeline, um, Adeline, I'm sorry, knew, um, knows what's going on 
in Iceland. In Iceland right now. Yeah, in pertaining to marriage. Okay. I don't know. Do you, do you will you share it with us? Hi, yes, sure. Hi. How are you? I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you so much for listening. But what what is it? What what is your question for Alita? Uh, my question is My question is uh what is your thought on Oh, you know, I think your radio was on in the background. I'm so sorry. Oh, Hello? I can hear it in the background. What is, what, what is your oh, you know what? I hate to do this because we really need your question. Um, I have a favor. We have to cut off where the show's about to end. Do me a favor. If you can reach out to morphmom.com with your question, I will share it with Alita, and I will get it back to you. I promise. But the show's about to end in one minute. I so appreciate you listening to us tonight. Morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. I will get that question to Alita, I promise, and I will get you the answer. And... uh I can't believe the time is up. And I was going to say one quick thing that I met Gloria Steinem uh, recently and she was so gracious and kind about Morph Mom and it resonated so much with me. And then what you just said tonight resonated so much with me. And I am so grateful to women like you who make me, who have made the road there for me and it made it available to me to now do what I'm doing. And it's only because of women like you and Gloria Steinem and all the women before me who've been, who've made this accessible Gloria and I am the grateful most generous of feminists the and most generous as are you oh, and I'm completely thank grateful so and I thank everybody for listening and uh, we're about to sign off and I'll see you all or hopefully you'll be listening to me next week next Thursday night seven to eight morph mom moments this will be in an iTunes podcast tomorrow and again any questions you had for Alita get them to me on morph mom I will get them to Alita and I will get you an answer thank you again for listening and see you next week served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City.
and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. You are listening to the title track off the new City Boys All-Stars album, When You Needed Me. The City Boys All-Stars 